I want to share with you uh, to start the message today that this week I experienced one of the most painful things I've ever gone through. See, for over a year I've had a, a tooth that's bothered me. And rather than address it, I've just decided I'm going to chew food on the other side of my mouth and just ignore this. And that, that went on for over a year until this week the pain became unbearable. I mean, literally, I was taking a migraine aspirin through the day just to make it through the day and until I could get to Thursday when I was to see the dentist. Now, I knew the dentist was going to say, you need a root canal. And I've had root canals before, so no big deal. People have told me that root canals are horrible, the worst thing they've ever gone through. I thought, what a, what a wuss, they're not that bad. I was wrong, this one was bad. I had waited too long. See, he gave me the shot to, to numb the tooth and then uh, ground the tooth down to where the, the roots were all exposed and began to use those tiny little things, little, little files to go in there and remove the roots, which the first three came out just fine. It was the fourth one that was the problem. Um, it was very sensitive. And every time he hit that nerve, I would flinch or jump. And after four or five times, he says, let's give you another shot of Novocaine. Went in there, gave me another shot, waited a little bit, went back in there. He worked a little more. It was fine for a while. Then he hit the nerve again. And I jumped a few times, and we realized, okay, we got, we got to give you another shot. Give me another shot. 15, 20 minutes later, hit the nerve again. And I thought, oh, this is horrible. So he decided he was going to go to drastic measures. He, he, took, the, he took a syringe that I swear was this long, <laughs> and he went into the, into the root canal which about sent me through the roof. If I ever wanted to punch a dentist, it was that moment. I went, it was, it, yeah, that, was, that hurt. But I figured, okay, I've endured that. Now, he finally got to the bottom of it. It should go real smoothly. And it did for another 15, 20 minutes until I jumped again. He hit something, and he pushed his chair away from me and says, okay, I think we're done for the day. He says, you've got an angry nerve. And I said, you, sir, have an angry patient. He says, we're just going to let it get treated with uh, some medicine right now, some antibiotic, and you come back and see me in two weeks. And boy, I can't wait to get back there to see the dentist in two weeks. But the problem was I had waited too long. And I always go away from experiences like that thinking to myself, Lord, is there a lesson in here you want to teach me? And of course, in this case, is there a painful, expensive lesson that you want to teach me? And there sure was. It was this. God has given us pain receptors for a reason. They're like little warning lights. They're little sirens that go off saying, something's wrong and it needs attention right now. And when you ignore it, it doesn't eliminate the problem. In most cases, it makes the problem worse. And that problem festers there until at some point it starts to scream at you and says, you can't ignore it anymore. You either address it or you're going to lose it. You either address this thing or that, or that thing, and it could be a tooth, it could be an organ in your body, uh, it could be something, you're going to lose it, which was the case with my tooth. But I realized that that's true physically in a lot of areas. It's also true relationally. You have a marriage, and there's an issue, and you ignore it. You think, we can tolerate it, we can, we can get by without it. I know it's an issue. We don't deal well with this area, but well, let's, just, let's just avoid it. And it doesn't eliminate the problem that thing just festers over here and gets infected and worse. And at some point, it will start screaming at you, and you will either have to deal with it or you will lose the relationship. Some of us wait too long, and that's where we end up. We lose the relationship. And I just want to tell you, you don't have to wait that long. And it could be a relationship with your spouse. It could be a relationship with your kids or your parents or a friend or a coworker or your boss. 
But God says we gotta deal with it now. And the way we deal with it is, is with this thing called love. Love. Now the problem with love is that we have been given a skewed definition of love throughout our lives. We've grown up thinking that love is an emotion. You know, I feel love. It's a warm feeling. It's a good feeling towards someone else. And when I feel love, then I act loving. But that's not the biblical description or definition of love. Love isn't a a reaction to an emotion. Love is a decision. It's an action, even when the emotion isn't there. See, if you always wait until you feel like it, whether it's love or a lot of other things in life, you'll rarely do it. Love says, I will act in spite of the way I feel. See, many of us are driven by emotions in a lot of areas of life. I need to feel it before I do it. And so we become reactionary. When this happens over here, then I feel a certain way, and then I act in a certain way. And most of the time, it ends up being a bad thing. Like, you treat me a certain way, I'm going to treat you a certain way. Don't poke the bear. You know, you should know better. And we justify our actions because that's how I feel. And you know what? It feels right. It feels good sometimes to lash back at someone. It feels good to, to vent ourselves on someone. And you may even have people around you that say, yeah, they had it coming. They deserved it. You have a right to feel that way. But I want to tell you that there's a person who says, you don't, you don't have a right to feel that way, and that's Jesus. Jesus says, I'm going to call you to live in a different way. I want to call you to live in a way that's countercultural. That's opposite of what the world says. I want you to have a love that's not driven by emotion, but that's driven by your relationship with Jesus. This is really the main point of the message today. Love is when I'm led by Jesus, not my emotions. And we have been called, it is our privilege and our purpose to be agents of love. In the the Bible, there's a chapter that's actually called the love chapter. We're going to look at it today. Uh, You might be familiar with the love chapter. There are portions of it that are read at weddings. It's very appropriate for weddings, but it wasn't really written specifically for marriage couples. It was written for us in general, just for human beings. And 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter follows 1 Corinthians 12, which is is a discussion on spiritual gifts. Now, in that discussion on spiritual gifts, the Apostle Paul says, we've all been given different abilities according to the Holy Spirit's work in our lives, and they work together like parts of the body, like the ear, the eye, the mouth. They're all different but they work in harmony. But lest we start to think that my gift's better than yours, he says, I want to show you the most excellent way. In other words, the way you exercise your gift is actually more important than the gift itself. And that launches us into this chapter called the love chapter. It begins like this. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and if I deliver my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Paul is saying you can use all those spiritual gifts. You can exhibit all the faith you want. You can impress a lot of people with how spiritual you are. But if you don't do it out of love you accomplish absolutely nothing. You will gain no reward, and you will become a nobody. In fact, he says, you, you are nothing if you don't have love. You, you quickly go from hero to zero without love. Love is critical. And the love that, that God wants for us is a love that's different than the world's kind of love. And see, when, when, Jesus, or excuse me, when Paul describes love as he goes on in the chapter, we're just going to look at two verses 
and what these verses say, it really describes to us some very common things we're familiar with, but living it out is a whole other story. Paul says, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. Now, when I read that, I think about the fact that God is love. And so I, I thought, what if we put Jesus' name in here and say that Jesus is patient and kind? Jesus does not envy or boast. Jesus is not arrogant or rude. Jesus does not insist on his own way. And Jesus is not irritable or resentful. Does that sound accurate? Sound like Jesus? Yeah, it sounds like Jesus. Now, now put your name in there. Would your, would your family say, oh, that doesn't sound like you? Oh, my goodness, that's not you at all. Or parts of it are you, but parts of it aren't you. That is the goal, that I could put my name in there and people would say, that's you. Because that's the goal of spiritual maturity is to love like Jesus. See, we're in this series called Endgame, which is really about one thing, faith expressing itself through love. If you truly believe in Jesus, it will produce love in your life. And if you are producing genuine love in your life, you will realize you can't do it on your own. It comes from someplace else. It comes from your faith relationship with Jesus. Faith and love go together. They're, they're dependent upon each other. Faith expressing itself through love. And see, when we look at this kind of love, you probably would say, like I do, that's not in me. It's not in me to love like that. It's not in me to be patient, kind, not boastful, not, you know, not insisting on my way. That's just not in me. I know it's not in you. You don't love because it's in you. You love because Jesus is in you. And the Jesus who is in you wants to love like that. So it's not so much me loving, it's me letting Jesus love people through this body that he inhabits. And if you're a Christian, that's the goal. So let's look at those qualities. First, love is patient and kind. Love is patient and kind. I love like him when I'm patient and kind. That is patience, right? That is patience. In Greek culture, the culture Jesus entered the world into, they did not consider patience a virtue. In fact, you've heard of the um, philosopher Aristotle. Aristotle said uh, that it is a weakness to be patient, that you needed to exercise your rights, that, that nobody should offend you or hurt you. And if they do, you, you exhibit your strength by retaliating. That's the virtue. You are strong and nobody's going to do it to you. And Jesus comes along and says, nope, it's not, it's not my kingdom. It's not how we're going to do things in my kingdom. We're going to be patient. We're going to be kind. See, Jesus took a word for love. It's the word agape. Ever heard of that? Agape? It's, a, it's one of the Greek words for love. But it's a, it's a word that was rarely used up until Jesus' time. It existed, it just wasn't really used by that much because nobody felt like that was a, a great word, an honorable word. Jesus says, I'm going to take that word. That's going to be my defining word. That's going to, be, going to be the word that defines my followers. See, agape, when you sound it out, is spelled A-G-A-P-E. Now, that's an English word, agape. You know what agape means? It means when your mouth drops open, you're, you're like amazed, you're in awe. And I believe that when you experience Agape love, that's exactly what happens. Your eyes get big, your jaw drops, you go, this is amazing. It's so rare, it's so wonderful. It's agape love. See, here's what agape love is. 
It's a love that does not require anything from the other person. It's a love that's always giving. It's a love that says, I'm thinking more of you than of myself. It's a love that doesn't put up conditions. That's agape love. And Jesus says, this is the kind of love I've come to give. And so this kind of love is very patient. Now, that word means to have a long fuse. Long fuse. It means that it takes a lot to get you to tip over the edge. In fact, in the book of Proverbs, it speaks of people with short tempers. That's kind of the, the issue. We have long tempers. We have, we're long-suffering. In fact, some of the translations will say long-suffering. In Proverbs 19.11, it says, It makes good sense that one is slow to anger. That's actually, actually the exact same word for patience, slow to anger. Long, long fuse. Patience is the ability to restrain emotions in the light of wrongs inflicted by others. That's patience. And patience leads to kindness. You can't, you can't be kind if you're not patient. And if you're not patient, you will not act with kindness. Kindness is so rare today. I mean, I'm amazed at how unkind our culture is. When I travel, like on a mission trip, and see how kind people are in other regions and come back here, I, I just, I'm appalled at how forceful people are in our culture, how unkind. I mean, it starts with our leaders at the top, the government. You get a group of politicians in a room like in a debate, and it doesn't matter if it's Republican debate or Democratic debate, they go at each other. They rip each other apart. They call each other names. They tear each other down. And I know that our, our president doesn't help. You know, he's been accused many times of being very hurtful and unkind in the things that he said. But here's the ironic part. There are other people in the media who are treating him disrespectfully and hatefully because they say he's disrespectful and hateful. You go, okay, so that makes it all better. We're just going to, we're going to, we're going to fight with the same thing they're fighting with. How, how about we do what Jesus says and, and says, let's, let's be the ones who are different. Let's exhibit patience and kindness. And the truth is, it's not just in the political realm. It's everywhere. I, I see it on the roads. I see it on I-25. I see it in department stores. I see it on social media. I see the lack of kindness in homes. Where mom and dad aren't even treating each other with kindness. Where parents don't treat their kids with kindness. Where kids don't treat their parents with kindness. What happened? Where did all that go? Why, why are we so harsh and impatient with each other? It takes the Lord's work in our lives. A couple of weeks ago, I was watching a football game. My favorite team was playing, the Dallas Cowboys. And Dallas has an incredible football stadium. Just amazing. It's a billion-dollar stadium. And they always pause sometime in the broadcast to pan Jerry Jones' private booth. He's the owner of the Cowboys. He's got this big booth, and there'll be celebrities there. And on this particular day, I was just surprised because uh, President, former President George Bush was there with his wife, Laura, and sitting next to him was Ellen DeGeneres. And I went, well, that's an odd couple. But it, you know, and then they moved on. And a couple days later, I said, I've got to look into that. Why, how did that happen? How did they end up in the booth together? And what I didn't realize was that Ellen paid a great price for that. that. That some people applauded her, some people ripped her to shreds because she was sitting next to someone who had views that weren't the same as hers. But I love what CBS News did when they reported on this. And I want you to watch this news clip right here. Finally tonight, we thought we'd address kindness, civility, and politics, which don't seem to be mentioned in the same sentence much these days. It took a greeting on the gridiron between former President George W. Bush and Ellen DeGeneres to bring it into sharp focus.
It may not seem like a big deal for a celebrity to attend a football game, but uh, I never leave my house, so it is a big deal. I... Ellen and her wife, Portia de Rossi, were invited to sit in the private box of Dallas Cowboys owner Jerry Jones. Former President George W. Bush and his wife, Laura, were also there. But during the game, they showed a shot of George and me laughing together, and uh, so... <laughs> People were upset. They thought, why is a gay Hollywood liberal sitting next to a conservative Republican president? Didn't even notice I'm holding the brand new iPhone 11. And, um, <laughs> but a lot of people were mad, and they did what people do when they're mad. They tweet. And, uh, but here's one tweet that I loved. This uh, person says, Ellen and George Bush together makes me have faith in America again. And, um... But instead of getting into the fray on social media, Ellen used the moment to preach about civility. I'm friends with George Bush. In fact, I'm friends with a lot of people who don't share the same beliefs that I have. We're all different, and I think that we've forgotten that that's okay that we're all different. When I say be kind to one another, I don't mean only the people that think the same way that you do. I mean be kind to everyone. Doesn't matter. We agree, Ellen. And here's something for all of us to think about tonight. How many of us have friends who don't share our politics or beliefs? And if we don't, why not? Real good question. Did Jesus ever do something like that? Of course. Here Jesus, Jesus shows up at a party with, with a tax collector and all his friends. And, and one of them was a new convert, but the rest of them weren't. And people just said, Jesus, why are you with all these people? You're validating what they do. He says, no, I'm not. I'm just loving them. And we need to love people in our lives that aren't like us. In fact, if we don't love those people, then I would have to question whether you have love at all. Because it's easy to love those that believe like us, think like us, act like us, smell like us, you know, all those things. It's, it's the love of Jesus that loves people that are so different. And so we need to act with patience. And that patience leads to kindness. In Romans chapter 2, it says, Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? See, sometimes uh, people come to the Lord because of fear of judgment. You know, I'm going to go to hell. I need Jesus because I've offended him. I need to be forgiven. And that's true. But most of us, I would say, come to the Lord because we realize how kind and patient God has been with us. You see, if, if, if God is like that for me, I want more of that. And we surrender our lives to the, to the God who demonstrates love through his patience and kindness. And if that can change us, think how our kindness and patience would change the people around us. Think about that. That is, the, that is the character of Christ, patience and kindness. Here's something else. It's in the negative side. If I am to love like Jesus, I'm not envious or boastful. The word envy is zeal that boils. Zeal that boils. Uh, it, it, zeal is much like the word jealousy. They're, they have similar roots. And there is a good form of jealousy. God is jealous because he wants our total devotion. It's kind of like a spouse. I want my spouse's total devotion. That's jealousy. But most of the time... Our jealousy turns to envy, and envy can be a very destructive thing. Envy works like this. You have something that I want. It might be possessions. It might be a title. It might be a relationship you have. It might be a gift you have, an ability, something about you, something you have that I desire. And, and what happens is I lose sight of what I have, and I start to feel discontent with what I have because I feel like I deserve what you have. Now, I'd love to say that, that as Christians, we don't usually struggle with that. But, you know, I've had issues with that all through my life. When I was in high school, uh, I would be jealous of the kid who got to play more than I did. 
got more minutes than I did. I was jealous of the kid who got a car given to him by his parents while I had to work at Kmart to to work part-time evenings to earn money to buy my first car, 1965 Ford Fairlane, and they get a car just handed to them. I got to pay for my college education. Other people had parents that paid for their whole education. You know, there's part of me that was kind of jealous. I remember when a, a guy in our church here years ago, when America West was an airline, said, yeah, every year we get a bonus, and this year my bonus from America West was $10,000. And uh, I thought, that's awesome, you rat. You know, I sure would like a, I sure would like a piece of that, that bonus. I mean, we, you know, we think, you know, fortunately when I became a pastor, we, get, we never get jealous anymore of other churches, other pastors, you know, budgets and buildings. We never get jealous of anything like that. But, you know, we do struggle with it. And we, I just, I want to ask you, when, you, when someone says, hey, I want to show you my new car, I want to show you my new phone, I want you to tour my new house, that you don't walk away saying, golly, they got granite countertops, we don't. Look at the size of that TV, I knew ours, ours only like 32 inches, you know. You know it's, it's hard not to start to get envious, but the danger is, you start to think you are owed what they have, and you're not grateful for what you have. And not only does it start there, it can go to a deeper level. Not only am I bothered by the fact that I want what you have, it can go to level was level where it says, if I can't have what you have, then neither can you. I'll keep you from having what you have. So we're back at the same level. And there's a story in the Old Testament that that illustrated this. Solomon became king, and he wanted wisdom from God, and God gave it to him graciously. And the first case he dealt with was of two women who were streetwalkers. They both ended up pregnant, had little boys. And one night, one of the women rolled over on her child and, and suffocated him accidentally. So she took her dead baby, swapped it with the live baby. But when the other woman woke up the next morning, she said, oh, my goodness, my baby's dead. Well, that's not my baby. You have my baby. She goes, no, I don't. That's your baby. Sorry. She goes, no, no, you have my baby. She said, we're going to go to see Solomon to settle this thing. So they went to Solomon, pled their case. Solomon hears both of them. And Solomon says this, "Uh, ladies, I've heard your concerns. So here's what we're going to do. Gentlemen, could I have the sword? Thank you. We'll just cut the baby in half, and each of you will get half of them. Now, one woman quickly spoke up and says, no, sir, no, don't do that. Let the baby live. Just give the child to the other woman. And the other woman says, no, no, I like that idea. Neither of us get to have them, so go ahead, cut them in half. And Solomon says, I now know who the real mother is. See, that the feeling when you're envious is, if I can't have it, you can't have it either. And when you watch 2020, 48 hours, those murder mystery shows, Quite often you'll hear some jilted lover that says, well, if I can't have her, you can't have her either. So I'm going to kill one of them. So that's the peak of envy. God says that should not even be a part of our vocabulary. That's not who we are. That's not what we do. And the opposite side of that is, if I want what you have, when I get what you don't have, then I become boastful. When I have something you don't have, it's like, no, 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 look what I have. And we begin to to parade it before others, and we want them to feel jealousy. Like, you should want what I have. And that's boastfulness. He goes, that's not part of love either. Just be humble, be grateful for what you have. We live in a culture, unfortunately, that has become so enamorated with boasting. I mean, I remember a day when a sports figure would, you know, sink a putt, make a basket, tackle a player, hit a home run, and, and that spoke for itself. Now, you've got to do a dance. Now you've got to pose for a selfie 
after you do your wonderful deed. And so, you know, a guy tackles a quarterback and, you know, he does a dance or someone scores a touchdown. They bring all the, all the team in front of them and they, and they all pose, you know, in the end zone for like a selfie. And I think, guys, guys, enough. I mean, can you imagine Jesus heals the blind man and says, okay, disciples, come over here. Let's all gather around and, you know, we're going to pose. I'm going to, ah, you know, whatever they're doing. They're gonna, right now, pose for the picture or pat, bring more, more to home. Hear a great song in worship. And after the song, Pastor Matt turns around and says, high five, high five. Hey, guys, let's all get together, okay? Pose now. We'd go, golly, guys, it's a little too much, a little too much. You don't need to do that. You know, the song was great. It was awesome. Don't boast. It just, it is not befitting of love. He says, don't envy or boast. Be humble, grateful for what you have, thankful for God who gave it to you. Then he goes on to say, love isn't arrogant or rude. I love how the King James Version describes this. It says, love is not puffed up. Love is not puffed up, nor is it rude. It's this picture of having an inflated ego. We talk about that sometimes. Man, he's got a big head. That's it, arrogance. It may come across as self-confidence. But self-confidence often is a a cover-up for insecurity. See, the person who is arrogant boasts about their accomplishments talks often about themselves, doesn't want to hear other ideas, lives off the praise of others, and and never admits their own mistakes. That's the arrogant person. Now, I know the Bible says that sin is sin, but it seems like God has identified this in particular as a a very bad sin. In, In fact, the Bible says God gives grace to the humble, but you know who he opposes? The proud. The proud. It's like... The, the proud want to go head-to-head with God. There's a story in Daniel chapter 4 where Daniel warns King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, which, by the way, had a phenomenal palace. In fact, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world came during Nebuchadnezzar's reign, these hanging gardens that he made for his wife, hanging gardens of Babylon, fantastic place. And, and Daniel warns Nebuchadnezzar saying, you need to watch yourself. Because if you don't humble yourself and acknowledge that there is a God who rules over all, that he's in charge of all the kingdoms, that you're, that you're just a little puppet on a string down here, if you don't recognize that, it's not going to bode well for you. You're going to be driven out to live like the animals until you finally acknowledge who God is. And then if you read a little further, after Daniel did this, some time passed, we don't know how long, but it says that Nebuchadnezzar answered. And Nebuchadnezzar, in his answer, said, isn't, oh, he's, walking on the, he's walking on his palace roof, and he says, isn't this the great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as my royal residence for my glory and my majesty? Aren't I special? And immediately, he was driven off of that, out into the wilderness, to live like a beast. His hair grew long, his nails grew long, and it said seven times past. We don't know what seven times means. Some translate it seven years. Some say seven seasons. If you just say seven seasons at the minimum, you're looking at, this is many months. This, this guy took a long time before he finally was humbled enough. It tells you how deeply rooted the pride was. It took so long before he finally says, okay, I get it. I get it. I'm not God. He is. And when that happened, he was restored to his rule. See, there is no place in God's kingdom for arrogance because when you're arrogant, you become rude. 
You treat others as less than you. And we see this in the Corinthian church. In fact, I think Paul is addressing this in the Corinthian church because they had a practice called communion, the Lord's Supper. And they didn't do it like we do it where it's in a church service. We just pass the trays down the rows. They actually, they actually did it at home when people sat around the table. And at the end of a meal, they would, they would pause and say, you know what, we're going to remember what Jesus did for us. And they would pass the bread and take a piece of it and eat it. And they would take a cup of juice or wine and drink it and remember what Jesus did. But in the Corinthian church, Paul said, some of you don't wait for the others. You eat ahead of them. And some of you drink all the wine to where you're drunk. He said, you're, you're being a disgrace to the body of Christ. And he says, we don't act like that in the kingdom. We don't act rudely. There was a time when uh, one of the pastors I really admired in our country lived up in the Northwest. Uh, he was very popular. Uh, they had, a, they had a, like, like a dozen to 20 satellite churches. Very prominent pastor. Probably more uh, downloads of his sermon than any other pastor in the country. But one of his trademarks was he was just pretty brash. He, he would just put things out there. In fact, he once preached through the book of Nehemiah. And when he came to chapter 13 where it says that Nehemiah got upset with the Israelites and their lack of devotion to God, that it says, um, Nehemiah cursed them, beat them, and pulled out their hair, that he says, uh, sometimes I need, I need to be that kind of a pastor. And, you know, I, I knew people that said, like, yeah, yeah, sometimes you just got to get tough with people. Sometimes you got to just rough them up. Uh, but I want to tell you, Nehemiah is not our role model. Nehemiah is not our example. Jesus is. And this pastor was eventually relieved of his position by his elders, and those churches were all freed up to go on their own. Why? No sexual immorality. The issue was he was a bully. And we as Christians, particularly Christian leaders, cannot be bullies. We, we, are, we, we are people who treat others with dignity and respect. If we act like Jesus, we should be opening the door for others. We should, we should be honoring the women in our midst. We should take care of the elderly and the children that are around us. We shouldn't be the ones at the front of the food line. We should be at the back. I mean, we, Jesus said, I've not come to be served. I'm God in the flesh. But I did not come to be served. I came to serve. And so that's the attitude we should put on as Christians is we are servants of others. It's not about me. It's about them. Here's something else Paul says about love. He says, uh, love does not insist on its own way. See, my default setting is selfishness. Selfishness. I know what I want. I know what I need. I don't necessarily know what you want or need. And even if I did, mine would trump yours. Okay? So I know myself really well. That's why I take care of myself. But love thinks of the other person. Love takes care of others. Remember Philippians, that verse in chapter 2? Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. That's the attitude. Sometimes Julie will offer to help me with the project. I'll be working out in the yard, working on a house project, and she'll say, hey, I want to help you today, which I love. I love the fact she wants to help me until she has an idea how we could do something better. <laughs> then I'm not, I'm not real open for that. It's like, I already know what I want to do. I just need a laborer. I don't need a, a foreman. And we'll get in a little bit of an argument sometimes over the project because she has an idea. And I have to confess, oh, this is really hard. Sometimes her idea is better. There, I did it. Sometimes her idea is the better idea. I go, yes, you're right. We should do it that way. But, but some of you will be saying, yeah, but my way is the right way. 
My way is the right way. Pastor, are you telling me that I should overlook the truth that my way is the right way? Um, let, me, let me tell you this. Paul doesn't say, love does not insist on its own way only when it's wrong. He says it just doesn't, it doesn't demand that it's done their way. Now, sometimes there may be a danger involved. Like, hey, we're going to do it this way because someone's going to get hurt. But most of the time, what gets hurt, what's at stake is the relationship. I mean, if you insist on being right, what you're putting at risk is your relationship. I'll bet most of us like being around people that are wise, people that have good ideas. We like that. But we don't like to be around people who are always right. We just don't like that. There, there's a, all these kind of flow together, the spirit of arrogance about that. And even if you're right, sometimes it's okay to not get your way for the sake of the relationship. My wife has a statement. I really like it. She says, you can either be right or you can be reconciled. You can't be both. And if we focus on, well, I, I just got to be right. I've got to have it my way. We got to do it my way. Uh, you might sacrifice the relationship doing that. Love does not insist on its own way but considers the way of others. And then finally, he says that love is not irritable or resentful, which means I won't be irritable or resentful. Irritable means to be easily provoked. It means that you're exasperated easily. It means that it doesn't take much to pull your trigger, push your buttons. And what happens is if things start to irritate you, they accumulate to the point of the second word, resentment. Now I, now I become resentful because you keep irritating me. And they're just different levels. Starts this low-level irritation, builds up to resentfulness. Now, the word resent in different translations comes across a little bit differently. J.B. Phillips' paraphrase says, um, love keeps no record of, love keeps no account of evil. The New, New American Standard Version says, love does not take into account a wrong suffered. I like the New International Version, which says it real beautifully, love keeps no record of wrongs. Because the word there is a word that refers to kind of, an, it's an accounting term. It means that you've been keeping track, keeping score. And if you're keeping track of your relationships and who hurts me and who's good to me and I'm going to keep it on this you know, mental ledger, and so every time something's done, it's added to the ledger, that may work good in finances. It's terrible for relationships. Because I'll tell you that when we keep score, the way we keep score is different than the way others keep score. And so when someone does us wrong and I'm keeping track of it, here's the danger. That will, that will continue to build until it gets to a point where we finally explode and say something like this, you pushed me over the edge. Or that was the last straw. Now, how do you ever get to those points? It's because you've been keeping a log and now it's, now it's reached the tipping point. I want to tell you this. When I read scripture, it seems like Jesus says, Clear the ledger as you go through life. Clear it off. Forgive. Deal with it. Overlook an offense. Deal with these things. Don't let them accumulate because if you let them accumulate, it is going to pull a, 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 the trigger on a loaded gun sometime. And you're going to explode and you're going to sacrifice a relationship. See, sometimes we justify anger and resentment because, well, I deserve to feel that way. And we call it a justifiable anger. We, we may even call it righteous anger. And we use verses like Ephesians 4 that says, be angry and sin not. See, it says be angry. There's, there's sometimes it's good to be angry. Do you know what just follows that verse? Paul says, be angry and sin not and get rid of it before the sun goes down. Get rid of it tonight. 
Don't let it carry over. If, if you find your anger is carried over day after day, I just want to tell you that's probably not a righteous anger. Because a little bit later in Ephesians 4, Paul makes it very clear what we should do with it. He says in verse 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with malice. He doesn't say all but the righteous part of it. He says get rid of all of it, all of it, every trace of it, every trace of, of bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander. Get rid of it, even the malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Now, you may say, but pastor, you know what? Sometimes I don't act until I get mad. Like, once I act, then I write the letter, then I clean my house, then I go to the gym. You know, I, play, I do my best when I'm angry. I would contend you don't do your best when you're angry. In fact, studies have shown that anger obscures thinking. In fact, coaches will tell players who get angry, get off the field. You do not play well when you're angry. Anger is not a good motivator. We think, well, we're going to get an angry mob together. You know what's been shown? Angry mobs may make a lot of noise. They do very little to solve problems. In fact, the more you, the more you vent, the less you do. It says, don't, don't let it get there. You don't need anger. In fact, I, I would challenge you to find one list in Scripture where anger is put on the positive side of, of character traits. It is always, always put on the negative side. Look at the fruit of the Spirit versus the fruit of the flesh. The marks of the sinful life. Anger is over there. Anger doesn't show up with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. It's over on the other side. Every list of spiritual virtues, anger is excluded. Man's anger, James says, does not work about the righteousness that God desires. Got to get rid of it. If we find ourselves getting irritated and angry, something's wrong in our heart. We've got to get rid of it. And Dallas Willard, who's written a lot about spiritual development, says stepping out of anger means you are surrendering your will to God. You are surrendering your will to God. You know, as I reflected back on all these character traits of love, I found that there's a common element. They're all, there's an element of surrender in all of them. For example, patience. Patience means that I'm going to sacrifice my expectations. Kindness means I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sacrifice my feeling of retaliation. Um... Envy means I'm going to sacrifice my longing for something that's not mine. I'm going to be content with what I have. When I don't insist on my own way, I'm sacrificing it for your way. When I, I fail to, to keep a record of wrongs, saying, saying, I'm going to sacrifice this desire to keep that record. I, I'm, not, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to, every time it's about giving up something. See, here's what's true about love. Love is all about sacrifice because love is always Giving, always. It's always giving. True love, mature love, is sacrificial. It's always giving, always. You know how I know this? Because I look back at, at the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we won't, read, we won't go into depth on these, but John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that what did he do? He gave his one and only Son. Paul says that, that, that the Son of God, Jesus, loved me and gave himself for me. He loved, he gave. God loves, he gave. So then he gives us the Holy Spirit. What does the Holy Spirit do? He gives us the ability to produce fruit. And you know what the first fruit listed is? Love. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all giving, all giving, all giving to us so that we could receive constant inflow of love. See, it's not in you to love, but Jesus is in you to love. And he's going to provide us the, the resources to love. He's in, and he's going to give us the reason to love. And what's that reason? Because he loved us first. And I think, I think that's the most transformative thing 
in our lives, if you grasp the magnificence of God's love for you, it makes loving others easier. And I'll prove it to you by this. If you've been diagnosed as having cancer and you're going to die soon, and you live with that fear for a number of weeks, and then you go to the doctor and he says, hey, got some good news for you. There's no cancer. It's totally gone. And you get on the highway to drive home and someone cuts in front of you, you feel like, you know, that's no big deal because I'm going to live. I'm going to live. Yeah, that, that wasn't nice, but you know what? That's okay. I'm going to be okay. I'm going to live. And, and, and the, if your boss says, you know what? got good news for you. Starting January 1st, going to raise your salary 10 grand. You go, home, you go home and your kids are fighting on the floor and you go, hey, kids, knock it off. I, I want you to come in the kitchen. I got some good news. I'm getting a raise. We're going to go to Disneyland, you know, whatever. We're excited. There's good news. Wife comes out of the bathroom and says, honey, we're going to have a baby. Honey, we tried for three years. We're going to have our first baby and they'll hug each other. And, and he sees the house isn't clean. He says, that doesn't mean anything right now. We're going to have a baby. See, here's the truth. When you've been given something great, then you can give grace to others. The greater the gift you receive, the easier it is to give something to someone else. And what I want you to do is just think about what God has done for you. When you didn't deserve it, when you deserve something far less, God says, I loved you in spite of your sin. And I loved you to the moon and back. And that's the kind of love that should make us feel like, you know, I'm going to love those difficult people. I'm going to love the rude people. I'm going to love the unkind people. I'm going to love the people that believe different than me. Why? Because I know today I am loved immeasurably. That's the good news, friends. And some of you need a big dose of the love of God in your life because you're finding it hard to love others. And you just can't grind it out because it's not in you. But you need to let Jesus be in you. Because when Jesus is in you, that enables you to love. You need to open the door and let Jesus have full access to your life. So I'm gonna invite you to stand. I want our prayer partners to be available up front for you just to surrender to him. And as you sing this song, just surrender yourself to his love. And if you've never surrendered to Jesus with your life, this is the day to do it. Last week, a lady came forward in the service said, I wanna give my life to Christ. And maybe that's you today. You wanna give your life to this God who loves you immeasurably. He has agape love. It's gonna make you stand with your jaw dropped open, your eyes bugging out saying, I can't believe that God would love me where I am. If he knew everything about me, and he does, and he still loves you. So let's surrender to his love. And if you need Jesus in your life, come forward so we can pray with you.